your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us today. It is James and I as we are discussing Chicago White Sox baseball, the week of our top 30 prospect list release. This is episode one of the podcast this week. If you're listening to this in a future date, make sure you listen to this and then go to our top 30 prospect episode. James, I'm listening to Keith Law talk to Jim Margulis. Wonderful interview done by Jim. They do it yearly on SoxMachine.com around this time. And I learned a lot because Keith has a unique perspective, especially about hitters. There's a couple of cuts that I want to hear in this episode today. We're going to bring it back for you. The name that keeps popping up is Brian Ramos, and he talks about him at length in the podcast. And again, like we're looking at these top 100 lists and we see Colson Montgomery. On some, we see Oscar Colas. Brian Ramos is a name that... Sox fans really need to pay attention to considering the evolution of the player over the last two years, I think. Yeah, and I think like we're going to see him a lot this spring, too, just because Moncada's playing for Team Cuba, and Brian Ramos was one of the first guys that reported like with pitchers and catchers, so he's there in big league spring training like on the 40-man roster. You know, it's a big year for him just because, you know, he's always been younger for every level, but this year he's going to get to tackle double A. So, you know, I think like as far as like where he's going to ascend, I guess, like on his prospect status. He's not super close to the big leagues, but being on the 40 man, you know, I mean, he is fairly close to the big leagues and, you know, somebody like Kylie McDaniel ranked him 48 overall in baseball, like on his top 100. I think he's one of the only ones that ranked him so far, but it seems like Ramos is on the periphery pretty much everywhere. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a big year for him if he goes to double A and hits, you know, I think he'll be, you know, pretty much considered probably like top 75 to 100 everywhere, I would imagine. So, yeah, that's one of the, you know, interesting guys to follow early in the season at AA Birmingham. Spring training's here. White Sox are inviting a lot of the prospects out to Camel, yeah, Camelback? Camelback Might Ranch, work. yep. So when I think about that, James, you talk about Brian Ramos this year as a position player that the White Sox expect big things out of. You know, I talk about the evolution of the player. Now, specifically in Ramos's case is the way he's leaned out his frame while maintaining a strong build. And he's bigger than I anticipated when he, you know, when he first was brought into the organization. I looked at the profile and the size concerned me a little bit. Uh, but to see where he's grown to this point in his career is encouraging. And to hear Keith Law talk to Jim Margulis about his ability to potentially play third base and even second, we likely expect him to be more bat than field at this point. It brings me to Lenin Sosa. Now we're sticking to this interview and I definitely encourage the listener to check out Jim's interview with Keith Law because, you know, whenever we hear from Keith, it's extra valuable. He had a lot of fun things to say about Lenin. And we talked to Jim last week on this podcast about the swing changes, James. And now we're going to get to a clip. Last week out in spring training, Rick Hahn talked about the second base position and 
related to the second base position, Lenin Sosa is you know among those competing. He also talks about Romy Gonzalez. So we'll get to the clip in a second. But James, I want to throw to you about Lenin because you've been on him. You know, you're you're high in him on, on your individual top 30 list. Jim mentioned the swing changes. Keith Law made it a point to acknowledge the development across Lenin's career and credits the Chicago White Sox organization and, and development team in getting him to this point. Can you speak on the significance of the swing change and why you like it so much? Well, I just think it like opened up his power. Like I think one of the important things was with him, like Lenin started in the in the Arizona league, you know, as a seventeen year old years ago. And, you know, after signing for three hundred twenty five K out of Venezuela or whatever it was, like he never played in the DSL. You know, he was stateside immediately and held his own and he was always super aggressive. He kind of looked like a guy that was, you know, just gonna be super aggressive and be more of a defender. And then something really changed last year he just like got his lower half involved instead of being like all hands essentially and it led to 24 homers I think look I think some of the aggression is still there I I don't think he's going to walk a ton right and there was you know a reference that Jim Margulis made about seeing him take like two consecutive strikes in a row and Keith Law laughed about it but like pointed out the significance of just the fact that you know you don't have to go up there and be so swing happy. And I think, you know, he kind of did it when he came up to the majors, right? We saw it in the small sample. It's one of the things to monitor because I think Sosa is going to start at Charlotte, but you know, I have no reason to believe that he won't just go to Charlotte and continue like hitting tanks. Like, like he closed the year last year. I mean, it's a, it's a really promising hitters environment, obviously that we're going to continue to talk about like in coming episodes when we start looking at these rosters, I just, you know, it's like Lenin Sosa is a different player now. And even if he doesn't get on base a ton, if he's like a 310 to 320 on base guy with good second base defense and power, I mean, that's a, you know, it, it might be a utility profile, but it might be enough to be like a regular at second. So, you know, that's just a guy that's a real prospect. And he's just come a long way over the last 12 months to really like burst onto the scene as like a real guy to look forward to here. And like, look, I think we're going to see him a lot in spring training. I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if he made the opening day roster at this point, but I mean, he's definitely one phone call away in Charlotte as a member of the 40 man. I love the highlighting of his lower half, the use of his legs. I mean, I thought it was so important to mention that. And considering what Jim said last week to us, you know, the, the ability to change, to develop, continuously across your career you talk about him in 2017 in the White Sox organization I remember seeing him in spring training on the backfield in 2019 and seeing where he was in 19 versus how he looks today is wild to me because he definitely is a different player and you mentioned yeah he is competing for the opening day second base job I'm with you I think he be you know begins the year in Charlotte and that kind of goes to how the White Sox roster sets up at this point. I believe they're going to carry 13 pitchers and 13 position players. And among those position players, you need four bench spots. I don't think they're going to keep Lenin on the bench to start the year. I think, you know, there are other positions of need there uh, on the bench that the White Sox want to take um, advantage of early in the season. Now that brings me to what Rick Hahn had to say about the second base position. And James, I know you, you heard something here. We all 
kind of who have heard this cut already perked up when we heard a mention of this uh, individual. But this is what Rick Hahn had to say about second base and, of course, specifically about Romy Gonzalez. There's been nothing but raves about Romy Gonzalez this offseason from those coaches that have worked for him. They even had a player who went down and worked with him and came back and came into my office in the offseason and said, don't you dare trade that guy. Uh, Lennon Sosa got a little taste last year. He obviously moved quickly. Want to see how he shows up and how he acclimates himself to sort of his first real big league opportunity and if he rises that occasion or if it becomes more of a challenge. Those are two of the most interesting guys in that mix. Obviously, Lurie's around. Guys like Zach Remillard, you know, have been sort of forcing the issue for a few years. Let's see what he has. And uh, as I said, there's still, you know, conversations ongoing elsewhere as well. So after hearing that, (laughs) big time raves for Romy Gonzalez, of course, right? I mean, think that is going to be the opening day second baseman. That's my guess. It sounds like the White Sox are in on Romy. But there was a slight maybe to Leary. Did you take it as such? Um, I don't, I don't know if I took it as a slight. I just like thought it was funny that it just like dawned on Rick Hahn that like Leary would be encompassing like a roster spot too. Like the whole thing mm-hmm. about like, oh, and obviously Leary's around hanging out and making coffee and just, you know, I just like assume that Leary Garcia is just like going to be on the White Sox forever at this point. So yeah, I mean, it's just pretty hilarious. I just, you know, to me, like it doesn't sound like a man that rushed to sign Larry Garcia to a three year, 16 and a half million dollar contract. Take that however you will. So like back to Romy, like, I think we knew that they kind of liked him. They gave him a lot of run last year. You know, he went on, eh, I think like a pretty torrid pace for like a little bit and then kind of faltered down the stretch. He's always struck out way too much. I guess when we found out that he was in Miami all off season with important members of the coaching staff and Oscar Colas, that's when I was like, Oh, okay. Like Romy Gonzalez is gonna, is gonna get the first crack at second base, which seems to make the most sense to me. I mean, look, Rick Hahn alluded to ongoing conversations that they're happening, that are happening. Like whether that's like trying to get Elvis Andrews to accept their price or, you know, trying to make a trade to balance out the team further and get like a young left-handed hitter at second. Who knows? Like, I guess that is always possible. But if that doesn't happen, I mean, it seems like Romy Gonzalez is the guy at second base to start the season. And uh, you know how I feel about spring training competitions. We'll see. uh, We'll see how that goes. But it seems like Romy's uh, entrenched like on the 26th man, at least as of right now. So three players that we talked about, Lenin Sosa, Romy Gonzalez, and you mentioned Oscar Colas, and a lot of their habits offensively follow a bit of a trend, and that's a lot of swing and miss, some aggression at the plate, chasing, you know, early in the couch swings. I don't want to put too much stock into Romy's uh, numbers last year, considering how bizarre his full season was. Not a lot of playing time, and the White Sox threw him at the big league level. They knew that he can handle it, but when you're so inconsistent in, in terms of seeing live pitching, especially going against the best in the world, I think you give Romy's numbers a little bit of a break last year. But Lenin, across his career, has this this same kind of profile where you, know, you heard it in Keith Law's interview with Jim and James, you made mention of it as well. You're going to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, he probably won't take his walks. That's kind of the same deal with Oscar Colas. And to what we know now about Romy Gonzalez, that's essentially his profile as well. 
Do you get the same sense there? And how much of a concern is it when there's three players that you believe could be regulars on the White Sox having that type of approach? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world because the White Sox didn't really strike out that much last year. And the one thing that all these guys present is they're all pretty good defenders. So, like, I think it's okay. Like, if you're... Like I, I would sacrifice on base percentage for power right now with the way that the White Sox have played because I think they have enough guys like that that do the other stuff. That I guess the scary thing about Romy is that even in like the the really good samples, right? Twenty twenty one at Double A posted a one thirty six WRC plus with twenty homers, still struck out twenty eight percent of the time, and that's in Double A. And then he went to Triple A. And did similar and struck out 28% of the time. So like throwing out last year's fine. I completely understand that. Like with the tonsillitis and all of the other stuff that he went through. Right. But you know, his, his big league sample was 109 plate appearances and he struck out almost 36% of the time. You know, I will say that there's, there's an article on Sox machine right now that, that Jim Margulis wrote just kind of about that, like how, they shouldn't be banking on Romy Gonzalez. Like, it's totally fine if Romy Gonzalez is on the team, but how Jim's, like, more bats than spots theory is kind of being tested a little bit, and, like, you know, they shouldn't be putting all of their eggs in this basket. And look, maybe they won't. Like, maybe Lenny and Sosa's awesome in, in spring training, and he's the second baseman, or all of a sudden, Jose Rodriguez is, like, looks ready for the big leagues. Like, I think they have a lot of options, which is the reason why they didn't run out to sign some sort of like Josh Harrison placeholder type. And I think you and I have both kind of said it and been in agreement with just like kind of letting some of these young guys battle it out and figure it out. And look, I think right field is, is going to be an improvement with Oscar Colas. I don't think he's going to be a star, but I think he does things that they've needed to where second base, like, you know, hopefully it's, it's league average offensively, just like with some power in the profile, I think that would be better than kind of what they've done over the last couple of seasons. That's James Fox. I'm Mike Rankin. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll listen to what Keith Law had to say about a couple of topics. One includes Colson Montgomery, the Chicago White Sox number one overall prospect. Spoiler alert, that's who is at the top of our list at futuresocks.com. Our top 30 drops this week. You're listening to the first episode of two this week that we will be dropping. The second episode will cover the top 30, so look forward to that. We also have an interview that James Fox did with a certain player that you will want to get some information on. He will be writing a feature, of course, in the future, but we got James on the podcast. He is going to answer some questions that I have for him about the conversation he had with Jacob Burke. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Future Sox podcast. If you're a Patreon member, coming right back. If not, you have some ads. So think about becoming a, a patron. Go to SoxMachine.com. If you're down, that'd be great. More White Sox baseball talk on the Future Sox podcast. Question for you, James. Should the White Sox trade Colson Montgomery? Uh, they, they should not, um, it could probably bring you back a ton. I would think, right. You know, if you're like at the deadline and in it, if like the price for like a Corbin Burns or something is headlined by a Colson Montgomery, I think you have like a tough decision to make and you just like do it ultimately. But no, I mean, you know, a team that spends like the White Sox do, you know, it seems like Tim Anderson probably rides off into the sunset here to another team, like over, the next year and a half. And I think they're planning on Colson Montgomery being their shortstop. I know Keith Law has mentioned 
you know, he kind of thinks he can stay at sh- short, but the general consensus among the industry is that, you know, that his size will ultimately push him to third, but everybody's kind of said like he still projects like a star player at third, right? And I, I know the White Sox think he can stay at short, so yeah, I don't I don't really think Colson Montgomery's going anywhere. And this looks like a you know, a pretty good feather in the cap of of Mike Shirley. I know who we've we've talked about. And it's you know, it's a big gamble to take a small school shortstop like out of the Midwest. And they, they look to be right so far. It's obviously a big year. Colson's probably gonna be at double A and then we'll really know, right? I mean, we've been, you know, doing this podcast for a couple of years now and I feel like Something we often talk about is Double A Birmingham and how it's tough. But I think some of these guys in the system have conquered it lately. I have no reason to believe that Colson won't. But you know, as he matriculates further and further here, we're going to know a lot more about him. And Keith Law is one evaluator that I've always just like kind of trusted his opinion on hitters. He's he's always had a really good grasp on offense and and what to look for and just the mere mention that Colson Montgomery could be a top 10 prospect in baseball at this time last year should have White Sox fans pretty excited. I want you to hear what Keith Law had to say about Colson Montgomery's development and how he perceives his value at this point of Colson's career. First full professional season concluded last year. Here's what Keith Law told Jim Margulis on the Sox Machine podcast just last week. I was a skeptic on Montgomery. I had not seen him personally before the draft. I had talked to lots of teams who had and um, R&D folks were a little skeptical because he was a bit older and there were questions about the quality of competition. It's all gone. He's, I, I think this kid's got a real chance to be a star. He might be a top 10 prospect at this time next year. That's the one guy I might clutch a little close and say, Juan Soto better be coming back if I'm going to trade him. There's wide discrepancies among folks I talk to about where he's going to end up. And it's funny, more than one person dropped the Corey Seager comp on him. And I told, I get it. And, you know, you've, you know, I've talked for years. I don't do a lot of player comps. Mm -hmm. I get it. There's a lot of Corey Seager there. I I mean, in, I actually think Colson's swing is a little bit better than Seager's was at age 19, 20. Corey made some swing adjustments when he was in high, I think it was in high A. And then he really, really took off. But, um, the big question I think folks have on Montgomery is where is he going to play? I'm actually on the high side. I don't rule out him playing shortstop. He, his actions okay. and his hands, when I saw him, it was I was like, wow, why is anyone questioning this guy off, moving off shortstop? Now, I have shorter looks. Right? I don't go sit on a team like a typical pro scout, especially with the new schedule. They'll go sit on a team for six days, You know, especially for a shortstop. They, you know, they should see 30 to 40 plays, and they'll see a broader mix of plays. So I defer to them. Typically, and you know, I acknowledge there's a good chance this guy moves off because he's too big, or maybe he, as he gets a little bit big, because his frame is big, as he gets a little stronger, heavier, maybe he slows down a bit. But I saw no current reason why I'd have to move this guy off shortstop. So to me, it's less a question of where does he play ultimately, and more let's see how this progresses. Maybe he can stay at shortstop. Corey Seager stayed at shortstop a hell of a lot longer than anybody expected, myself included few things, James, that I want to point out in that clip. I know we hear the athleticism and we've been giving Colson Montgomery that credit since the White Sox drafted him, acknowledging a multi-sport athlete and the fact that he's, with his size, able to play shortstop at that position. But the first thing that jumped out to me, James, was his approach at the plate. And that tells me that he has something that is sometimes difficult to teach, 
a professional hitter, and especially one who's as young, coming into the league at 19 years old, who already had an advanced approach at the plate, and now he's building on that. I, I just thought that was definitely a moment that we needed to acknowledge. For sure. And with him, it's just like tough to know. And I think Keith Law kind of acknowledged it. Like where Colson played high school baseball, you know, it's really easy. And I know you've you've been out to games in this area. Like when there's a guy this good, like they, they get walked a ton and you don't really see him. Like where you really see him is like out on the showcase circuit. And Colson didn't do a lot of that stuff because you know, he played football and he was a high level basketball player that, you know, thought that he was, you know, going to go to Indiana to play basketball. So there just like wasn't a lot of that. So he seemed like kind of a pop up kid. Like, remember, I think when I first mentioned Colson Montgomery, like if you went to like MLB pipeline, he was ranked like in the seventies. Right. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's a first round pick of the White Sox. I think everybody kind of thought this is the right area, but he really like rose throughout that process. I just think you know, the, the approach and the plate discipline was something that wasn't really in the scouting reports because nobody, nobody really knew. I feel like the power isn't really all the way there yet, but I think everybody's kind of projected like above average power potential, which is why if he did have to shift to third, people think that that would be fine. You know, even for like some, some of the more casual fans, like, I think you're going to see Colson some, like, in spring training with Tim Anderson playing for Team USA. So, you know, that's a uh, a really fun player and something that it, it just, like, looks like the White Sox got one right. Well, with that being said, I'm with you about the power, especially considering, like, it's hard to inherently have a selective approach at the plate. And that's why I was so high on Andrew Vaughn when the White Sox drafted him, because I felt like Vaughn knew what he wanted to do at the plate. Every time he went up there and every time he saw a pitch, he knew the strike zone better than most at the time that he was drafted and at his age. And we saw a little bit of of struggles with certain pitch mixes last year for Andrew Vaughn, but I'm expecting a huge year for him, you know, in 2023. And I said it on this podcast multiple times, give him 1500 plate appearances and you'll see a polished hitter. And when I think about Colson Montgomery, I get Andrew Vaughn vibes at the plate in terms of that type of approach. Now it's a different profile, obviously from the left side, but somebody who could slap the ball from gap to gap and provide power, play shortstop, ultimately maybe gets to third base. That's somebody, that's a foundation piece in your organization. And when I asked the question to lead off the segment, James, would you trade Colson Montgomery? The answer is no, because of, you know, that very thing, this is a player who is as close to complete as there is at such a young age, you have to, like, we're getting ahead of our skis a little bit on the player, but that's just how he is projecting based on where he's at in his career. Do you agree? Well, yeah, and I think, you you know, you hear the Corey Seager comps and, like, you kind of scoff at it, right? Like, you see it, you hear it, like, in the lead-up to the draft. It's like, oh, he looks like Corey Seager. And, like, yeah, he did. He kind of looked like him physically. And, you know, I got messages from from White Sox people that I know like, yes, you know, it's the Corey Seager playbook, whatever. But like now he legit looks like that sort of guy. Like some of those comparisons, it could be true. I mean, this is like similar to how Corey Seager was like coming through the Dodger system as a high school draft pick as well. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's exciting. It's, it's not really what I necessarily expected like look I'm always fine like taking the high school player in the first round you know that they're just 
you know, Midwest kid. There wasn't a ton on him. And, uh, you know, I think it makes me more likely to kind of trust similar selections in the future. Now, you talk about a player comp. Corey Seager is, I think, it's not lazy. It's almost to a T. And that's why evaluators like to use it. I mean, the length, the position, the size, the athleticism, the ability to play the position within the profile. We hear Randy Johnson's name, like brought into the conversation. Every, every time, yes. I all the time when yeah. it comes to Noah Schultz. But did, I know you saw this picture, James. Noah Schultz is freaking massive. Yeah, he looked a lot like thicker than I was expecting. Yeah. You know, like Peyton Paulette, like looks like he's like <laughs> smaller than you are, you know, like when he's like. Yeah, and I'm six foot. Yeah, so, you like know. and standing next to Schultz, though, like and yeah, like Peyton Paulette looked look tiny like next to him and he's you know he's not that small so yes that was like a mountain of a human already and he's like 19 and keith law had some thoughts on specifically the young pitchers you'll hear him talk about noah schultz i thought it was interesting his take on noah schultz because when we when, when the white Sox when we covered the draft and when they selected schultz our initial reaction was okay this this is kind of risky considering a player of this size, left-handed, you don't necessarily see this very often, and especially as a high school player. There's so much that could happen across a career. But it, let's let's hear what Keith Law had to say, and I also wanted to bring this to the conversation as well because I think it's important. You know, we always talk about the prep pitchers that the White Sox have been selecting, included Tanner McDougal and Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dawkins, Jared Kelly, and Noah Schultz. Those names are covered in this clip, and I just wanted to react a little bit to what Keith Law had to say about the state of the system regarding their prep arms that have been developing over the last couple of seasons. I mean, the three guys you mentioned, Thompson, Dahlquist, Kelly, that's basically, I think in the last five years, that's all that maybe even longer than that, because Adams and Danish were longer ago. And Tanner McDougal um, had uh, Tommy John. He had Tommy John, right? And I'm, that's a guy to watch for this year. I'm really curious to see what it looks, because it was getting pretty good. And then he blew out. So I'd really like to see, you know, I, I'm still got hope for that one. I mean, I think it's fair to look at the Thompson Dahlquist. Those guys were the same year and say that really didn't work. And th those were two very different kinds of high school arms. Dahlquist was supposed to be sort of the more polished command and nothing's plus. And he comes in, he does throw a little bit harder, but the command is just like he left it in high school. And Thompson is still pretty athletic, doesn't really translate much into the delivery and the stuff has been kind of more up and down. He's the better prospect of the two at this point. I don't know what we're doing, what to do with, with Dahlquist right now. And I actually think Kelly, it's not a great looking year. If you just go off the stat line, it's like, Oh no, this guy's actually trending back in the right direction now. And mm -hmm. I don't know what he is in the long term. There's still like, he could still never get out of double a, but I have hope for him that I didn't have a year ago, but to your broader question, no, I don't think this is a general white Sox problem. High school pitchers are, it's just a terrible demographic, particularly up top, right? You want to take that high school pitcher in the sixth round who, who your area scout, you know, got a bunch of looks and knows the kid real well. All day long, you take that guy. It's the first round, top 40 picks, wherever you want to draw that line, where it's it, they have higher risk and the opportunity cost is that much higher. And that was, I was not a huge fan of the Schultz pick. He may turn out to be great. Obviously, if he stays healthy all the way to the big leagues, he's a 6'9 lefty with a really tough look. That's mm -hmm. like hitters are not, that is going to be a very uncomfortable at bat, especially for left-handed hitters. So I like him for what he is, 
but he's a high school pitcher and he's a super tall pitcher. We've had very few pitchers that tall be able to stay healthy and work as starters in the big leagues. Only a couple in major league history have been able to do that. So the odds are really against him. The upside is definitely there, but I didn't love the pick just but really for those specific reasons that that is, is they took, they went into a high risk demographic to begin with and then took a high risk guy within that high risk demographic. All right, James, few things. I know we'll get to Noah Schultz, but the one thing that caught my attention was that Keith Law believes Jared Kelly is trending in the right direction. After a very tough first professional season, last year it seemed like he made some changes and built a little bit of consistency in his repertoire to suggest that he is back on the upswing of a player. You know, in a player, this is this is somebody who when we when we covered the draft and when he was selected in the second round, 2020, the White Sox spent overslot on this guy convinced him to sign with the organization. We had a lot of high expectations for this player. And now it's good to hear that in 2023, he's back on the up. Yeah. You know, I've always been a fan of Jared Kelly. You know, I know that there was some struggles obviously, but he did kind of start to put it together a little bit last year, which is good to hear. And I think, you know, a guy like Keith Law ranks the White Sox system where he ranks them. But then if you read what he writes about the system and listens to what he says, like, you know, there is some promise. Keith Law was a guy who was really big on Andrew Dahlquist, like pre-draft. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were. And obviously, like, look, like Andrew Dahlquist's career isn't over. Like, what is the kid, like 21 or 22 or something? It it very clearly hasn't worked. Like, if one of those guys hits, though, like, that's kind of the point of the operation. And it seems like the White Sox are pretty high on Matthew Thompson. Matthew Thompson will be pitching in big league spring training. He's likely at double-A Birmingham this year, fairly close to the majors, like on the periphery of that pitching depth. And then I think like the two biggest points made were like with Schultz, you know, it's like a risky demo within a risky demo, right? It's kind of what he said, which is like high school pitchers in general are risky, but then you also take like a six, nine lefty high school pitcher and there's just not many six foot nine pitchers in minor league baseball. So they're really banking on, you know, I guess like something outside the box working, which, you know, I think I was generally fine with, especially when we talk about how they insulated the rest of the draft class. But then Tanner McDougal, you know, like Tanner McDougal was a fifth rounder who, yeah, they gave 850K to. But while Keith Law has always been risk averse and he has always kind of mentioned like how risky it is to take high school pitching in the first round, he said do it all day in round five or six. Like if you have the money in your bonus pool, to, you know, give $800,000 to a guy in round five or round six. Like that's, that's the perfect time to do it. So like, I I think those were just a couple of takeaways with just the overall White Sox strategy. And yeah, man, developing like high school pitching is tough, which is, you know, one of the reasons why the White Sox system kind of lies where it does. Like they, they took a gamble on some of these guys and then they lost a couple of seasons and like, we're seeing the ramifications from that. But you know, it doesn't seem like with this scouting director, they're going to stop doing this anytime soon. I think that was very well said, uh, well put on the Noah Schultz point. And when you mentioned Andrew Dawkins, I mean, Keith Law talked about it. That's a guy who you figured would have a trajectory in minor league baseball, considering his pitch mix and the fact that his strength out of the draft was the command in high school, but that never really transpired in professional baseball. And like you said, Career's not over. Still young, and I consider him a top 30 prospect. We'll see if he made the Future Sox top 30 list once it drops this week. These are some of the things that 
come into play when you're considering the White Sox strengths in the farm system and when you're developing, you know, prep pitching. I think Andrew Dahlquist is a fascinating story, and we should continue to monitor his development because it's a big year for him this year. And like you said about Thompson, I expect him to uh, to pitch at a high level this year. That might be Major League Baseball at some point in the summer or maybe near August, September time if the White Sox need him. Hey, maybe it's even sooner than that. This is all up in the air considering outside of the 40-man roster, the depth, we talk about it. it it's kind of scarce. So this is going to be a season where – we want to focus on the names that we've been covering for years to take the next step. And that's what really the top 30 is all about in the preseason this year. And I'm excited for you to read it. I'm excited for you to react to it. And uh, we'll have that top 30 reaction show for you this week. Once again, on the future Sox podcast, James, before we wrap up, you had a chance to talk to a white Sox farm prospect. Did you like them? I mean, what were the impressions that you got after discussing all of the things baseball and, and career wise with Jacob Burke? Yeah. So, you know, I usually like to do a couple of these every year and I have some other people to reach out to before I could actually like write the piece, but you know, super interesting. Jacob Burke was an 11th rounder out of Miami. I'm always very curious with the 11th round pick because, you know, essentially it's the first pick that like doesn't count against the bonus pool. And I got into that with him a little bit. Like I asked, like, just like how much insight he had into the process of like how the draft works. Right. And he was talking to teams in round seven through 10 and you know, look, the gist of it is like if the White Sox pay him $225,000 in round seven, you know, $225,000 counts against the bonus pool. If they pay him $225,000 in round 11, only 100K counts against the bonus pool, right? But he's still one of their top seven or eight picks like bonus pool wise. So they really gave him like top seven round money. He's one of the more interesting guys from the last draft class, just like a really physical center field projection with power. He hit 13 homers at Miami. You know, he was just a very confident kid and fully expects to go to Canny or Winston-Salem. He told me he didn't really care where he starts. He just wants the opportunity to play, and he thinks he'll essentially burst onto the scene. I know Mike Shirley said some really good things about him. He got a taste of Kannapolis to close out last season. You know, there's some stuff in the interview about him like having to transition to wood and how he didn't really know what to, to expect, but he thought that it went well. So, you know, I, I think he's a guy that's going to be on future top 30 lists. I just, you know, I think he's one of the, one of the real sleeper prospects in the system. You know, he told me some things about Oscar Colas cause he worked out with him a little bit this off season and some other guys from Miami he mentioned jazz Chisholm, um, just cause he like lives down in the Miami area and knows some of these guys. So, you know, I, I get that up on the site at some point in the next couple of weeks, like after we're done with top 30 here. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I just, I think he's an interesting guy to follow in the low minors. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited for the listener to check out what we have to offer at futuresocks.com and socksmachine.com. Part of the Blue Wire Network is where you are able to get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe. Send us an email, futuresocks at gmail.com. If you have any questions, we'll answer them here on the podcast. You know, rate us. That'd be great. It helps with the algorithm. We really appreciate your support. Thanks so much for everything that you do for us at futuresocks.com and socksmachine.com. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. We release episodes every Tuesday, but this week, two episodes for you. So stay tuned for our top 30 show. We'll talk to you all soon.